I set this crazy audacious goal for myself of saving 100K at 25. I announced it publicly and rebranded in 2019 to her first 100K. And it wasn't her first million. And it wasn't her first 100K saved. It was whatever that 100K was for you. Maybe that was 100K earned, 100K net worth. Maybe it was 100K of debt paid off, right? I was investing. I opened up a Roth IRA when I was 22. I was saving a portion of my paycheck. And then her first 100K was the side hustle. So any additional money I made went into savings. And then hit my 100K in September of 2019. I was 25 years and three months. (laughs) The joke was as long as I could do it the day before I turned 26, it counted. Sure. 100K at 25. Yeah. And then, yeah, I got the call from GMA while I was on my celebratory trip to Europe. I was in a pub in London. They called me and quit my job three weeks later. This episode brought to you by WeWork. The way you work has changed. The way you grow your business has changed. WeWork has flexible workspaces built for all the ways you work today, so you can drop in, connect with others, and get to your to-dos. Get out of the house for a few hours and pop by WeWork's co-working space when you need it. Looking to reconnect the team a few times a week? Bring everyone together in an office that fits what they need. Take meetings or offsites around the world from London to LA. Unlock hundreds of locations easily with all kinds of great amenities. They're even dog friendly. Now you can try out your local WeWork for the day for 50% off. To redeem this offer, just go to we.co forward slash behind the brand, download the WeWork app and use the code behind the brand. Check out by April 15th, 2023 to receive 50% off your booking. This episode is brought to you by my brand new, absolutely free VIP list. Want to get a short note from me each week with what I've learned from interviewing some of the smartest people in the world, the best inspiration, education, access to my private events, special perks, unique finds, free stuff, and a lot more to help you improve your life and business. Get on the list. Just go to behindthebrand.tv forward slash VIP. It's an email newsletter. It's as easy as that. One, two, three, VIP, behindthebrand.tv forward slash VIP and get on the list. This episode is brought to you by Vimeo. I've been a pro user of Vimeo basically since I started my production company in 2010. Vimeo is for creative professionals like me, and I use it in several different ways. For example, it's a place for me to upload my videos with a password for my clients to be able to review and download the work I'm doing for them. Uh, There's no compression, crushing of black colors, or oversaturation like what I get when I upload a YouTube video. My clients get the full 4K resolution HD as it was intended. I also use it to host and broadcast live events. I also use Vimeo for my portfolio, case studies, and it never has annoying pre-roll ads. I can create a customized player and keep people on my landing page so they don't get distracted and go down the rabbit hole watching someone else's stuff. What you may not know about Vimeo is that you can use it if you're an HR or if you own a company. You can put all of those onboarding videos all in one place, a nice, tidy, professional-looking uh, playlist or playboard where people can consume and understand or download all the new training videos all in one place. You could also do the same thing if you teach a course. Imagine putting all your videos behind a paywall, charging for it, and then you know, sending people the link with a password. Need a videographer, creative director, or editor? Vimeo lets you post jobs and find creative professionals. There's a ton more options, so I would suggest checking them out. Just go to vimeo.com and see what's possible. Hi, I'm Tori Dunlap, the founder of Her First 100K and the New York Times bestselling author of Financial Feminist. And we're on Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Everyone, welcome to another episode. Tori, welcome. Thank you for having me. I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? <laughs> how did I get this job? Yeah. 
Oh man, um, I had a great financial education from my parents. It was me really trying to navigate, you know, saving money as, as a kid. And I thought that that was the case for everybody. I thought, okay, everybody knows not to overspend on credit cards. Everybody knows how to save money. And of course, getting to high school and college realized that wasn't the case when I was the friend all of my friends were coming to for advice and guidance. Mm-hmm. And we were talking before, I mean, I majored in organizational communication and theater in college. And if you would have told me even six years ago, you're going to be a finance expert, like I would have laughed in your face. This was not part of the plan. But Trump got elected. And I was coming into adulthood and into womanhood in 2016, having just graduated college, trying to figure out what kind of person I wanted to be. What did my career look like? How did I navigate a sexist workplace where I was making somebody I didn't respect rich? And her first 100K was kind of born as a blog in December of 2016 and kind of blew up from there. Um my origin story was me trying to save $100,000 at age 25, successfully hit that goal, literally quit my job three weeks after being on Good Morning America. And now we have one of the top business podcasts in the world. We have a New York Times bestselling book, which I get, it's very thrilling. It just happened. And it's so nice to be able to say. And we have an audience now of over 3 million women. Um, and we're fighting the patriarchy by getting them rich. Yeah, no big deal. I mean, just, you know. <laughs> You know. But it's been fun. It's what it's my life's work. It's what I believe I was put on this earth to do. Yeah. Let's go back in the chronology a little bit. Yeah. Um, I'm always fascinated. What did your parents do? Did both of them work? Was okay. No. So my dad is a salesman and like best salesman I've ever encountered. Obviously a little bit biased, but like it's classic version of like really, really good at his job, but in a really ethical just relationship based way. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, where I learned a lot of my like squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of you pitch yourself and you pitch yourself and you're always respectful about it, but like you pitch yourself until you get a yes. Right. And then my mom was a homemaker. Um, we call him at a, her first 100K after we had a, a Tiffany Dufu, who's an, a great, incredible speaker. Um, she called them non-compensated working moms. Yeah. And so we had a stay-at-home mom, non-compensated working mom. And, yeah, hardest uh, job in the business. Oh, yeah. And I'm I'm an only child. And so I feel like that was a really interesting experience of both of my parents, especially my dad didn't grow up with a lot. Um, and so that financial education was really important to them. And I didn't just they weren't just telling me how to manage money. They weren't like, okay, here's, you know, here's how to create a budget. But then they were off blowing their money. They were very much talk the talk and walk the walk. And so, you know, we lived very frugally, but then we also took a trip as a family every year. And I think that that was one of the first times that I really started to see what value-based or mindful spending looked like. And that's part of what I teach. There's a whole chapter in the book on it of like, you don't have to stop spending money, but I need you to stop spending money on things that you don't care about. Shit that's not important to you. And I think that that was like the perfect example of like, if you're frugal in this area, then you can spend pretty lavishly in this area that you care about. Um, So yeah, it was, I think, an intentional decision on my parents' part of we didn't grow up with a lot. So how do we make sure that, you know, she has... The, the skills and the tools she needs in order to progress. I hear you ask people a lot, um, what's your earliest money memory? Yeah. I think it's a great question. Tell that story of your story. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's worth telling. Yeah. So we spent an entire section of the book. Really, the first whole chapter is about the emotions of money. And I think far too many people who discuss money, these financial experts that we're used to, just blow right past like the psychology of money or the emotions of money when really... I can't teach you how to create a budget. I can't teach you how to pay off debt. I can't teach you how to invest. If all of these narratives and all of these emotions around money 
keep sabotaging you. So why do you think that is? I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, money is emotional, right? No, but why do you think the so-called oh, the money, experts... Why they're not... Because it's messy. Yeah. It's... it's it's. Um, I have a very, obviously, public uh, vendetta against Dave Ramsey. And, like, one of my biggest, like, beefs with him is it's, like, one, he kind of comes down from on high and he's, like, I am the guru who's here to teach you everything. And yeah. I'm, like, I think I have some things to say that are great, but there's plenty of other people, too. Yeah. And I think part of his advice that, like, links to the the guru part is it's, like, okay, this is my plan. Right. And this is the one that works. Right. And if you don't do it, it's kind of like a diet, right? Like they make these impossibly difficult diets to follow. And then they're like, this isn't why you're, lo- this is why you're not losing weight is you're not following it. Yeah. And so it's like, I think that going straight to the advice I learned, and I tell this in the book of like, I used to do this when I would coach people one-on-one because I was so committed to helping them as quickly as possible as I would be like, okay, you know, oh, you're making $5,000 a month. Okay. Here's how we budget that. And what would happen is they would be successful for a while. And then they'd come to me, I don't know, three months, six months later, and they'd be like, I want on a spending like binge. Yeah. Rice and beans only is not working for me, right? Oh, like- and and I've always <laughs> been about balance, but it's, yeah, it's that, it's that idea of like, unless you start to understand, oh, I'm actively pushing away money because I believe that the pursuit of wealth is wrong. And I've been told that, right? Then you're not going to understand, oh, this is why I won't seek out that raise, or this is why I feel shame for being in debt. Right. So your money memory question. Um, we talk about in the book, what yeah, what is your first money memory? What is the first time you remember thinking about money? And anybody at home can do this, but I think it's it's really powerful because the way we manage money is actually cemented by age seven. We know from statistics and data that unless you work to change it, your money habits, your money beliefs are cemented by second grade. So my money memory was saving up any like pennies I could find on the streets, any you know quarters I had t- in an Altoids tin to go see Annie the musical because I was a theater nerd. Mm-hmm. And my mom told me, okay, if you want to go see Annie, I was probably four or five. If you want to go see Annie, like you have to save money. You have to save for it. Now, I had no income source. Of course, I'm four years old. Yeah. Tickets are like 25 bucks. The intent was always they were going to take me to Annie. It's right? more of a lesson than- Totally. Yeah. And I look back on that and of course, how I manage money now. Okay, I don't- overspend on credit cards. I save money if I want something, right? But also the interesting thing was, is my parents always picked the stable option and the stable choice. And so when I was on the precipice on 2019 of quitting my job, it was this really interesting, it felt like such this like big jumping off a cliff risk. And I literally had my parents calling me and they were like, you need to keep your job. Like you need to do everything you can to keep your job because, and I'm very thankful for it, it was the 401k, the health health insurance, the stable choice. Yeah, the scarcity mindset. Right, but right. also just this feeling of like, my, my dad has always wanted to be an entrepreneur and never has because it was like, okay, I got to provide for my family. I got to, right. you know. Too risky. Right, got to pick the stable option. And I joke sometimes, I'll call them and be like, hey, remember that advice? <laughs> How are we doing now? I think we're doing a lot better now. Yeah. But like that. I'm that, sure he's very proud of you. Yes, totally. But it, those positive money memories even, yeah. right? It's like the, you know, they sometimes can come back to bite you in different ways. And when we do this practice, the vast majority, of course, of money memories are not great. It's, I saw my parents argue about money. I realized we didn't have enough. I went up to buy lunch at school and they told me I, you know, didn't have money on my card or whatever. So it's a really interesting microcosm example of like, oh, this is influencing the way I view money now. Yeah. The psychology of it is fascinating. Yeah. 
So when you're doing, because I know you do coaching as well, or you have... I have, yeah. I don't do it anymore yeah. um, so much. But yeah, that was like the start of her first 100K was like sitting down for, I think, like $47 an hour and mm -hmm. at, you know, the Starbucks five minutes from my house and like pouring over people's budgets. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell, I mean, can you kind of at least have a starting point when you hear that first money story and kind of know which direction to go? Yeah, well obviously the easiest one is it's like, is it a largely positive story? Is it largely negative? You want to try it on me? You want to go? Yeah. What's yeah. your first money memory? So I, th I thought a little bit about this. Yeah. I thought maybe you, we you're setting me up perfectly. It. And I maybe. It. <laughs> um, I think probably my earliest memory is going door to door and asking people um, if I could cut their lawn, cut the oh, grass. Yeah. Sure. The grass. And I think I kid. made, yeah, I think I made, I don't know, two or three bucks or maybe five bucks a uh, lawn. Yeah. And then I would take that money and I would invest. I use the word invest because mm -hmm. that was an investment. I would buy uh, baseball cards. Mm -hmm. And then I would arbitrage the value of the cards with my friends yep. to try and flip the yep. you know, flip the cards and try to, you know, yep. trade up. So what does that say? <laughs> well, I would ask you, what do you what do you feel like that has has that impacted the way you manage money now? Or the way you view money now? I think so. I think um, I think I've always kind of fundamentally seen myself in a sales role. Yeah. Um, even if I'm super creative, yeah, I'm still having to convey my vision to a client or yeah. uh, do a pitch and say, I think this is a good idea or this strategy is the direction we should go. Well, we were talking before of like, it seems like, you know, the hustle is there, right? And it's like hustle, not in a bad way or in a like capitalist way, but like, yeah. you know, okay, I'm going to figure this out. Well, yeah. And to unpack that a bit further. So my background, kind of like yours, uh, my mom was divorced uh, a couple of times. She was married three times before mm. I was 16. Wow. We lived from, you know, different places. Basically, I was this latchkey kid, yeah. which is a term, you know, right. um, left on my own. Um, my mom did a nice job raising me. I wasn't, you know, uh, in danger, but I was very much on my own. Yeah, and it's so, very common. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that sort of fend for yourself because no one's going to mm -hmm. do it for you or, you know, get what you want because no one's going to buy you baseball cards yeah. mentality has translated into, mm. you know, yeah. what I'm doing today. It's like, you got to make it happen. Right. No one's going to hand it to you. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, we spend the entire book, you know, discussing all of the systemic barriers to building wealth and to really equality in general. And of course, I'm speaking as a cisgendered straight white woman, like, yes, had plenty of, you know, uh, systemic issues as a woman trying to not only progress in my career, but just talk about money in general and be an entrepreneur. But like, I have a ton of privilege. And so it's interesting, of course, when I've worked with women of color, just how seeped that money narrative is like i have a good friend who's latina and she's like the interesting thing is we didn't grow up with a lot of money and so it's now whenever i got money i needed to hoard it because right. i didn't know when it was coming next yeah. right and it's like again perfect example of like these these experiences and these stories and these narratives that we grow up believing have everything to do with how we're managing money now or how we view money in the world yeah. or how we view people with money. I think it's a super healthy exercise and it really didn't even occur to me until I read the book. Mm. Um, I think it's a very good exercise. Just self-reflection, taking inventory, yeah. like figure out what your starting point is and maybe um, what's pushing you or pulling you in a certain direction. And then think about that. Get curious about why that's happening. Right. is very, very healthy. Yeah. And I think um, the other aspect of it too is that realization of like 
very few things are actually in our control when we've been fed this narrative that if you're not rich, you're not working hard enough, right? And it's like, I, we live in a society where I would argue personal finance is about 20% personal choices or the things you can control. And 80% is racism, ableism, homophobia, sexism, recession, natural disasters, right? Everything that's not in your control. Right. And it, I think it's, it's very damaging when you are working hard to then hear somebody tell you, well, if you were working hard enough, you'd be a millionaire by now. <laughs> and it's like, you can't tell the single mom who's right. trying to make ends, ends meet and is doing everything to provide for her and her family. Right. Oh, you're not working hard enough or you'd be rich by now. And I feel like just just people hearing that is such a like re relief. And then we're going to do what we can to control the things we can control. Yes. Yeah, so maybe that's a good segue into brand. You know, this show is called Behind the Brand. Yeah. Um, I see you as the anti-Dave Ramsey. Um, I appreciate that. That's the goal. <laughs> the anti-establishment or the, you know, the anti... Um, Disestablishmentarianism. Yeah, but just like <laughs> the anti... Maybe status quo. Yeah. Um, status quo is not necessarily bad. No. Unless it is. Well, and I, I'm also not the first person to do this kind of work in this kind of way. Yeah. There's been plenty of people before me and hopefully plenty of people after me. Who will continue to talk about money like this. But I think what's great is you're, you're stepping out into the spotlight. You're being more vocal about it. Yeah. And you're creating a platform. So if I were to ask you, um, what is the Tory Dunlap brand? <laughs> How would you describe that? That's so interesting. And we can, I can take it, I can answer it two different ways. My immediate answer is like, I know I have a personal brand, right? But the interesting thing is like, you know, people come up, up to me on the street and it's so kind. And they're often like, oh, you're her first hundred K. Right. You're the money girl. You're the financial feminist girl. So they don't know your name. They sometimes do. Okay. But the interesting thing is it's like I've really battled with that of um, this is like getting really personal. But the interesting thing I think about just the way like I, it was always like, OK, we're getting good grades. We're like succeeding. We're accomplishing things. And I've really had to in the last couple of years separate who I am as a person mm -hmm. versus what. I am doing my productivity, my output. And so even like Tory Dunlap as a brand, part of me is like the marketing part of me is like, oh yeah, of course. And the other part of me like wants to throw up. It's just <laughs> like, I I want to exist as someone who is a human, as my coach always says and my mentor, a human being, not a human doing. Right, right, right. right? But like I hear you say Tory Dunlap the brand and immediately my brain's like, no, no, I don't yeah. want it. But the marketing part I think is really interesting. If I were to describe it, or really I would say what her first hundred K is versus me and my own autonomy, I think it is very it tries to be very inclusive. I think it's very unabashedly feminist, of course. Um, I think it's empathetic, non-judgmental. And I think the other part is it's like it's always political. And that pisses a lot of people off. But the truth is, is it's like if we want to talk about anything money, money is political. Yeah. And if we're going to talk about anything branding, if you don't stand for something, you stand for nothing. Could not agree more. I always yeah. say if uh, you try to be everything to everybody, you're nothing to nobody. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think it's a good strategy if we're talking strategy. I'm, I'm yeah. sure it's innate. Um, no, but it was a very strategic choice right? of like, I remember 2019, I had just rebranded her for Center K and was trying to figure out like, what does this look like? And I got my first like big press 
piece and I was on Market Watch. And of course, the average Market Watch reader is probably, you know, a white man named Steve who's like 50 or 60, right? Mm -hmm. And like not really my clientele. And so the interesting part was like the comments and this this like story went viral, like millions of views in a couple weeks. And um, the comments were like, again, who does she think she is? She lost me at cisgender, like all of this stuff. And I had a really interesting like moment where I was like, okay, I can either work to like put solve on this basically of mm-hmm. like, okay, I'm going to play nice. And it was actually the decision of like, yeah, these are not the people I'm interested in talking to. Right. And if I piss them off, sorry, yeah. like there's other people for you. Right. But you know, you have the thing that every, every one of us has, which is just like, I want to be liked. I want you to like me. I want you to see me for who I am. And I was like, okay, this is, this is, it means actually I'm doing something right. If you're pissed off about me acknowledging privilege, it means I'm doing something correct. Yeah. Well, you're in good company. So we were talking about Seth Godin off camera. Yeah. And um, the thing I learned, one of the things I learned from Seth is shun the non-believers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, you know, it's a very important message, whoever you are, wherever you are. Right. It's like this, in fact, you can even start with, this might not be for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, if, Again, I think marketing 101 is it's if you're trying to be everything to everybody, they're not going to know who you are. They're going to be like, is this for me? I don't know. As opposed to it's either, oh, yes, hell yes, I'm going to tattoo this on my forehead or not interested at all. How would you define um, what a brand is or branding? Like, how do you see it? Mm. I see it more as like, what is the feeling that people get when they consume your content, see your face, see the brand color. Yeah. Like, what does that feel like? Right. And for us, really, you ask, like, what is, you know, the her first 100K Tori Dunlap brand? I think it's honestly just, like, confidence and power. The interesting thing that started happening probably a couple of years ago is we're now getting messages, like, every five minutes from a woman somewhere, which is the most humbling thing of, like, I paid off $20,000 of debt or I, you know, saved my first $1,000. And the second sentence, it's always comma, and now I feel so much more confident in every aspect of my life now. And I'm like, that's the brand, that's the feeling. I don't really consider ourselves to be a financial company. We are a feminist company who happens to talk about money. And I think with, you know, if we were to define brand, I think it is the feeling that you get buying that product or the feeling that you get yeah. And also the impact, hopefully it has not just on you, but the world around you. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Cosign, your brand is a short shorthand yeah. for what other people think and feel about you. Yes. Right? And so a lot of it is out of our control, mm-hmm. right? Like, so once we put whatever we're going to put out into the world, whether it's a book or uh, a website, a blog, yeah. um, a podcast, you put it out there for people to consume and then they get to decide what it is. Yeah. And yeah. So if you have a million fans, you might have a million different opinions. Hopefully there's some, you know, common threads, crystallization, but it's also personal. Yeah. Because everyone will internalize what they're consuming and like apply it to their personal life. But yeah, it ought to be a shorthand for what you stand for, like how they, how they your feel. Your values, your mission. All of that stuff. Yeah. yeah I love that. Um, let's go back to the branding of her first 1000 100,000 yeah um so i i know the story but for those of who haven't heard the short story kind of give that to us i think i think it's yeah. a great story yeah so i was you know running this blog 
I was 20, sorry, when I was 22. And then it was really, it was just like life as a 20 something woman. It was the classic, like, I think Tumblr aesthetic around that time. Yeah. This is like 2016. Yeah. 2016. Yeah. I was, yeah. Graduated college in May and launched the blog December of 2016. Yeah. And by the way, anybody who's watching, ago. no, but it feels like forever ago. Um, but the, like, I literally had been talking about like doing a blog for years and I literally woke up one day and I was like, okay, today's the day. And I <laughs> bought a Squarespace domain. I joke like this now multi six or seven figure business started with $40. Like truly, yeah. it was like bought the Squarespace domain or opened up the Squarespace website and bought the domain. 20 bucks, 20 bucks. And like I launched it. I launched the blog. I had three blog posts. I threw them up. Like I think we often get caught up in like what is the perfect thing and what's the brand color yeah. and what's the logo. And I'm like – I didn't know any of that. I figured that out along the way. Yeah. So launched that blog and then was running my nine to five and marketing was doing social media marketing in my day to day. And then I would come home and work on the blog. And then I was trying to figure out again, like I was saying before, like, what kind of person am I? What do I want to talk about? And of course, I was very activated and moved as a 22 year old in the political climate we were all in. And I was the friend all of my friends were coming to for advice and guidance. And I was also reckoning with like, okay, I'm in my first job. I thought this would be amazing. And I fucking hate it. Yeah. I hate it. Oppressed. Well, I just, I hate making somebody, again, I don't respect rich. I hate showing up and asking to take vacation and I only get, you know, seven vacation days a year. And I tell this story in the book, but my first job out of college was extremely toxic and extremely misogynistic. And I met my best friend there. I had a lot of great career experience, but I was getting really like sexist things said to me at work. I was watching women get passed over for opportunities. It was like a largely white male leadership team. And I was like, okay, this isn't it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is not it. And I became like rose colored glasses went off like week two. And so I was realizing when I was producing content, you know, on Instagram and on the blog, I would talk about travel, but it was always like, oh, I scored this flight deal or, oh, I negotiated my rental car down. It was always about money. Mm -hmm. because the entire world's about money, right? Yeah. You want anything, yeah. you need money. And that's stupid capitalism, but like that's the way it exists. Is it like you want to go to therapy, you need money. You want to travel, you need money. You want to well, start a business, you need money. And I'm guessing that you were sort of adulting for the first time. Totally, so, trying to figure that out. And like, yeah. it was like, okay, if I do want to travel, I, I need to make sure that I'm making this amount of money or at least saving this amount of money. And again, controlling the things I could control. Right. And so I set this crazy audacious goal for myself of saving 100K at 25. Um, it was literally I read because I was consuming as much financial content as I could. I read this blog of somebody who had a net worth of 100K at 25. And I was like, let's see if I can do one better. Mm -hmm. But completely like self-assigned thing. Yep. And um, I announced it publicly and rebranded in 2019 to her first 100K. And it wasn't her first million. And it wasn't her first 100K saved. It was whatever that 100K was for you. Maybe that was 100K earned, 100K net worth. Maybe it was 100K of debt paid off, right? Yeah. And there was a couple components of that 100K story. First was privilege. I graduated college debt-free. And that was a combination of my parents having some money to save or somebody saved. And me also working three jobs on campus, getting merit scholarships. Um, I we were talking about value-based spending before. That was huge for me is, okay, if I wanted to travel, 
great, but it meant I couldn't afford this other thing. I was investing. I opened up a Roth IRA when I was 22. I was saving a portion of my paycheck. And then her first 100K was the side hustle. So any additional money I made went into savings. So that whole year, we were kind of gaining momentum, both for me as my my 100K journey, my personal finance journey, and then also the business. And then hit my 100K in September of 2019. I was 25 years and three months. <laughs> the joke was as long as I could do it the day before I turned 26, it counted. Yeah, sure. 100K at 25. Yeah. And then, yeah, I got the call from GMA while I was on my celebratory trip to Europe. I was in a pub in London. They called me and quit my job three weeks later. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, hard to believe that was almost, well, three and a half years ago. But it feels like so long ago. So much has changed in the world and me personally in the business. And, yeah, it's just wild to think about. That's not a lot of time, yet it feels like a ton of time. Sometimes it happens that way, right? Yeah. Sometimes uh, it's quick. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you can agree that success and, well, let's not call it failure. Let's call it learning. Sure. Success and learning or success and not success. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's temporary. Well, and what do we define a success as, too? Right. Yeah. Let's talk about signals for a second, because it seems like there are a lot of signals. I mean, some that were super overt and obvious, like <laughs> the toxic environment or yeah. the people that you felt uh, were not giving you a fair shot. Um, how can What kind of advice can you give to our audience about listening to signals, whether it's yeah. up here in the brain or in the heart? I would argue your brain actually doesn't give you very reliable advice. And that's something I've had to learn recently is not every thought in your brain is true, especially those like, you know, intrusive thoughts where you're just, I'm very happy and content with my life, but sometimes I'm driving down the road and my brain goes, what if you just, what if you just want like that? And I'm like, I don't want, that's not, <laughs> I'm not interested in that, yeah. but you're, my brain's telling me to do that. And so I think, I am a very cerebral person. I'm a, and I have actually been working with an energy coach in the last couple of years to like ground me in my body because I have the best gut and my gut has never been wrong. Yeah. But either you have lost touch with your gut, your gut speaks to you, you can't hear it, or you've had significant trauma or people who have may but like buried that gut impulse to the point where you, yeah you don't hear it not because you're not listening to it but because it may not exist in the same way anymore mm -hmm. and for me literally anytime i've met somebody and i'm like oh this person is i can't put my finger on it and again i had an episode on my podcast with um a woman named ashley stall and she's an author and a speaker and she said um like gut or intuition is the thing you can't describe like, yeah. it doesn't make any sense. But you just go like, mm, this is right, or mm, that doesn't feel right. And when somebody asks you why, you don't really have an explanation. But to, to your point about signals, there were so many moments in my life where I was like, or in, in even the last couple of years in my career where I was like, oh, okay, that's not right. Yeah. And I've known that for a while, but it took me a year to actually act on it. So do you think that, and I'm just exploring this out loud, yeah. I don't have an answer, but like, do you think that gut... Because I agree with you, by the way, that right or wrong externally, that the gut is always right. Yes. Um, would you call that intuition? Would you call that inspiration? Like, mm, that's a good question. Because I'll tell you from my experience that some of it is totally illogical or doesn't make sense if you wrote it on paper. But right. Also, it's a blend now of life experience. Yeah. 
where like I've learned some things the hard way yeah. and I processed that and then that's gone wherever it goes in the gut. Right. And I'm still relatively young and hopefully I get a lot more life experience where I think that, yeah, I don't know. Well, would you call it, you said intuition and you said inspiration. inspiration. Would you think creativity is different? Um, I think it's uh, synonymous because... That all three are? Yes. Okay. Um, I think the intuition to me, it, it seems most grounded in that gut feeling. Like mm. you meet someone and you're like, oh, this is a red flag. Yeah. I, don't, I can't put my finger on it, but yeah, this yeah, person's yeah. probably not who I want to be with for a long time or work with. You sort of know. Yep. I'm not talking about first impressions because those can change. No, no, no. But like you have a feeling and you can't, you don't know what it is. The inspiration sometimes, you know, I get my inspiration a lot in the shower mm. or when I'm driving. <laughs> Common, yeah. When I'm not thinking about anything, yeah. I just have like that white noise of the water rushing right. over me. And it's like, I'll have this great idea. Um, and so I think that's where the creativity comes to. It's like, yeah, it happens when you're playing, yes. you're not focusing on it. I think that, yeah, inspiration and intuition, I think are two separate things. My intuition typically is the thing that's preventing me from doing the bad thing or like, is the like, this isn't right versus inspiration is like flash in the pan of like, oh, try this. Yeah. Or problem like, solving. Yeah. It's like a curiosity versus a like, hi, I'm preventing you from getting eaten alive. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. 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 Like it's, it's almost like the animalistic impulse. I think I just knocked Mike. Sorry. It's like the animalistic impulse of like, oh, if you go there, you're going to get eaten. So like, don't right. go there right. versus like, I don't know, inspiration is like, I don't know how we continue the metaphor. Maybe, oh, we're going to do cave drawings today. But like, I think that there is a difference, at least in my own life. Like my epilogue for my book, I joke that that was the best writing I've ever done. And it's one page, but it came to me in five minutes with no edits. Yeah, I've never felt that feeling before in the same way. Let me give you some more context on why I'm asking it. Because yeah. I feel like, and again, reading the book, listening to you on your podcast, I feel it's super relatable when I hear you say a lot of people... They have self-doubt, mm -hmm. imposter syndrome, whatever you want to call it, or they have this analysis paralysis. Yeah. And maybe that's their gut, like, oh, I'm not ready yet. What do you say to that? I think confidence is a worthiness issue, but we don't talk about it like that. Um, when you believe that you are worthy, you won't show up in a situation that treats you less than. And you also know, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. Like, I can tell you the day, the last day I had imposter syndrome. 2019, I was on a panel. Again, her first 100K is like little itty bitty. I was speaking in a, like a lean-in event in Seattle. Okay. I'm the youngest person on this panel by 10 years. I show up in Adidas and a leather jacket. Everyone else is a VC or a financial advisor, pencil skirt, blazer. And I'm going, oh, shit. <laughs> This is, uh, I am out of my depths here. They know so much more than me. What am I doing? And then I look out in the sea of people and it's women in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, they all look like you. Yeah. yeah. And then we start talking and these very intelligent, like very smart people, some of whom I'm still in contact with, they're using words like um, asset allocation and portfolio rebalancing. And I'm watching every set of eyes in the room just glaze over. And I'm like, oh, Okay, 
So yes, I might not have the resume. I might not have the, you know, the the years of experience, but I have something to offer. Right. In a certain way. And that was the last day because every time now I show up, even this like perfect example of like all of the people you've interviewed, I'm like their resumes are stacked. I'm again, not even 30, and I could sit here and go like Mm, I'm not supposed to be here, but I'm also thinking, I know what I have to say is important. Now, it might not be important to, uh, again, Steve, who's 60, but it might be important to somebody who's in their 20s or 30s. Well, I would argue, I would argue that it is. And that's, Thank you. I think so, too. That's, but like, yeah. I, when I'm, I, I know I'm worthy of that thing, yeah. then I will show up, right? Yeah. If I think I'm worthy of love, I won't go on a date with somebody who's not going to treat me with respect, right? Right. I won't be in a job if I can help it that isn't going to, you know, compensate me fairly. I'm going to try to find a different situation. And I feel like with imposter syndrome, really what what has happened, especially if you're a woman or if you're a member of a marginalized group, is we have actively told you, no, you're not worthy. Society has told us forever, you are not worthy of good things. Shrink yourself, play small. And that's why I piss a lot of people off because I refuse to shrink. And I think that that's that's something that's so um, it's so hard to reckon with because we think it's just a personal issue. We think it's like, okay, I'm holding myself back. And I think sometimes people are, but it's also you're battling against a system that is constantly asking you and really demanding that you shrink and play small. Yeah. And that's difficult. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Um I think especially the margin, marginalized, but I think it's a message that translate across the board. Yeah. Because I think no matter what you try to do, no matter who you are, for the most part, you're going to get pushback. Always. Always. You are n- not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. Ever. And you'll also get a lot of like, who gave you the right mm-hmm. to start a podcast? You've never done that before. Yeah. Who gave you the right to write a book? This is your first. Come on. Yeah. You know. Some of my Amazon reviews, I was looking last night and it was like, she majored in theater and communication, so I'm not going to listen to her. She's not qualified. And I'm like, have you written a book? Are you in the New York Times bestseller list? Right. Because we can, we can go toe to toe. And that's the other thing is it's like, I don't, I don't take any shit. <laughs> yeah. I love that. But you know, the reason, you know, appeal to authority is a fallacy of logic for a reason. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's difficult, right? And I, I talk a lot about being comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. We are conditioned, again, as human beings to crave comfort because that's safe. Even if we know, again, our gut going, yeah, this relationship isn't the best that you you were, you know, the best that the world has to offer yeah, you. Yeah, I can do better. Right. Mm-hmm. Or no, I mean, this sounds harsh, but like sometimes you're just like, I love this person, but like this is, I'm not growing in this relationship anymore. But we have a dog together, we have a kid together, mm-hmm. we have like a house or I literally had a friend who got married, but was calling me and was like, I already put 10,000, I already put $10,000 down on my wedding. So like, I'm like, sunk cost, Tori, yeah. what do I do? <laughs> I'm like, do you know how much divorce costs? But yeah. it's like, it's, it's that feeling of like, discomfort is so difficult. Yeah. And I, I have the most empathy for it. But it's like, at some point, you have to understand, again, that you are worthy of better. And it might be temporarily uncomfortable. It might be uncomfortable to move into a new apartment and feel lonely for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But if you know and you don't honor yourself, what does that mean? What does that say? Well, yeah. And back to the gut or the intuition, I think yeah. I would much rather have 
the consequence of that decision than 20, 40, whatever years later, the the regret of what could have been. Yep. That to me is, what's that Thoreau quote? Um, Most men live lives of quiet desperation. Oh, I haven't heard this. Men and women, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And it's that idea that, you know, oh, what if or coulda, woulda, shoulda, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's the saddest, I think, consequence of them all, right? Not not doing it. Yeah. And again, I always bring it back to like very little of this is like personal shortcomings. It's just like if you've been told your entire life by potentially family, by people around me, but at least by the system of like, again, you're not deserving of more. And also we're going to put all of these barriers in front of you to get more. That's very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, bottom line, if you want something to change, you have to do something different. Yeah. Nothing changes unless you change it. Yeah. Of the things you can control. Yeah. I have a couple more questions for you from the book. So maybe we'll go kind of more rapid fire and cool. unpack the ones that you want to unpack. Um, let's go to tactical. If I'm just getting started mm-hmm. or if I feel like I've been down a wrong path, where do I start? Financial first, planning. Yeah. Yep. First thing. Break it down. Offer yourself grace. You were not taught this unless you were. Um, we think that we either have the good with money gene or we don't. And it's just like anything else. Like I didn't come out of the womb speaking fluent Italian or playing the tuba, yet I expect to be like a money wizard. And it's like, you're going to fuck up. Like, it's okay. There's going to be times – no one taught you this. Right. The financial system's really complicated on purpose, I would argue, is my not-so-conspiracy theory. But like th- it's going to be difficult to navigate. So offer yourself a lot of grace and understanding. Don't beat yourself up. Don't bring shame into the equation if you can prevent it. By the way, to your point, yeah, I mean, I think information arbitration is such a thing in every industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the reason why barriers to entry in like production have come down so much. Is yeah. Because it used to be tricky and technical and I used to be able to like right. s- stand behind this curtain and fool you with mm-hmm. things that you don't know. Magic. And then everything's changed and yeah. the walls are down. So you're kind of doing that you're absolutely doing that in the financial space. I hope space. so. There's a lot of us who are trying to do that. Yeah. With like investing is a perfect example. We know actually from statistics that the women reason women don't invest is fear. Fear of getting started, fear of making a mistake, fear of losing money. I can debunk all three of those fears in about two seconds with some education. But again, we've been told, oh, it's complicated. You need to pay somebody to do it. Right. And also the people we pay statistically do not outperform index funds. <laughs> like, so it's like, it's it's crazy. First thing, grace, understanding. Um, second thing is to automate everything you possibly can. I think sometimes we think we we believe, okay, we'll get a gold star if we make this as difficult as possible. Does that mean automatic deposits to a Automatic deposits, or? setting up, okay, like I sometimes am like, I will remember it, so I'm not going to write it down. And then I don't remember it. Why don't I just write it down? Yeah. Why don't I just set up that automated bill pay with my credit card. I'm not going to remember on the 15th of every month that I need to pay it. It's so key. It's like technology exists if you can't use it. But automate your savings as well. Not just like, you know, your electric bill and your credit card statement, but also, you know, from your checking account to your savings account, you can do this once a month. You can do this when you get paid, even if it's just $20. Yeah. And you can set the dollar amount. Right. Or the percentage of the paycheck. Happening on autopilot, we call it in the industry, paying yourself first, right? It's not waiting to the end of the month to start saving when you don't have anything left over. And it's also building the habit. So even if it's just a small amount of money now, 
If you manage 20 bucks, you can manage 200, 2,000, 200,000. So you're building the habit. You're building that muscle of saving. So automate your savings. Automate everything you possibly can. The third is that, especially with women, what I'm seeing, we're very good at saving money. But again, the investing gap is huge. We know about the pay gap, right? 82 cents, depending on you know the data, who you talk to, 82 cents to a man's dollar, even worse if you're a woman of color. But we're not talking about the investing gap. So women are either waiting to invest compared to men or not investing at all. And again, I would argue there's many factors to that, but one of them is just no one's teaching them, oh, hey, when you open up the Roth IRA, that's not the investment. You actually have to go take that money and invest it in something. You have to go purchase your investments. Right. So women are keeping, if they do have the flexibility to save this amount, they're putting tons of money in a checking account or a savings account, and it's not growing like they need it to in order to you know, be able to have a kick-ass retirement at 65. So savings important. That's your emergency fund. That's your short-term savings. But then you have to go a step further when you do feel that, you know, when you're ready to take that step and actually invest it. Okay. So how much in the emergency fund? Three to six months of living expenses in a high-yield savings account. So we talk about in the book of like figuring out what your living expenses even are, yeah. right? Which let's is, say it's let's say it's five k a month. So five times three. So your starter emergency fund's fifteen. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that's like, oh my god, that's so much money. One month, work to one month, or even again that first thousand dollars, and then keep going. And that automation is going to help, right? Because it's happening without you having to think about it. You can also label your savings accounts. This is my my favorite little hack. So as opposed to like two four six zero one or whatever number it is, it's like you know, Croatian vacation 2024 or when shit hits the fan, because again, we're getting our brain on board and psychologically, you're going to be less likely to take money out if you're like, oh, I need that thing or I want that thing Right. before you pay off any debt. And this is something that like is so important to me. Yes. Even if you have tens of thousands of dollars of debt, even if you have credit card debt, that emergency fund needs to happen first. Right. Because one, don't want you going into more debt to try to pay for an emergency. And two, we are all about mental health at her first 100K. And it's just so nice going to bed at night being like, okay, I have something in the bank should Mm -hmm. something happen. Okay, let's talk about credit card debt then. So let's assume you've got that security fund, that safety fund, rainy day fund, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Um, Oh, I know I was going to ask. So the... um, Regular savings account versus the high interest or higher high yield. High yeah, yield. yeah, yeah. How do we do? We just go to our bank, like any Great old question. bank. Um, so the average bank, like the brick and mortar banks, are not going to offer you a high yield savings account because the online banks are. They don't have the cost of you know tellers and the rent or the you know the the lease on the place, mm-hmm. and so they're giving the funds back to you. So the average bank account, I think, interest rate now is like less than half a percent high yield savings accounts as of this recording are like three and a half four and they're increasing every day and it's like better nothing oh and if you're the person who's like okay i'm struggling to save your money's supposed to sit there for your emergency fund and it may as well be working as hard for you as possible right and so i we always joke like again tattoo on my forehead high yield savings account we talk about them incessantly but because they're like so easy. They're the easiest thing you can do to better your money. And they don't cost. They don't cost anything. There's mm-hmm. plenty out there that are not charging fees or minimums. And it's also, again, if your money's going to sit there, let's have it work harder for you. I think you have a reference to it where people can go and find resources, right? Yeah. Herfirst100k.com slash HYSA. Yeah. Um, and it's on our website too. Yeah. It's a terrific resource. Yeah. Okay. So high yield savings. Um, and you're fine having multiple two, three and labeling. Oh, yeah. Label yep. them. And it's that way you, your money is assigned a purpose. 
a lot of people like just put all their money in one account and they're like, this is my money for the wedding. And this is also my money for the emergency fund. And it's like, you have to give your money a purpose. Mm -hmm. And that way a lot of women will reach out to me too and be like, I have an emergency and I feel guilty for using my emergency fund. And I'm like, have you labeled it? And they're like, no. And I'm like, if you label it, that's what it's there for. And yeah. there's less guilt of using that money because that's why it's there. It's an emergency fund. It's for emergencies. Love it. Uh, credit card debt. Okay, yeah. so you want to pay that down next? Yes. Um, before student loans, before... Yep, we're keeping the minimum payments going while we're saving the emergency fund. We're not like disregarding it completely. Mm -hmm. But um, the, the kind of litmus test is if your debt is over 7%, it's worth paying off before more aggressively investing because seven to eight percent is the average we can expect in the stock market. Yeah. So if it's costing you more money by being in debt, it makes sense to pay that off first. All credit cards are going to be over seven percent, right? We start about fifteen, they're going yeah. all the way up to thirty, thirty-two. Yeah, yeah. So paying off your credit card debt is huge. And again, this to some of your to some of your watchers, listeners, this might not be novel, but they've <laughs> so fucked. The reason women go into debt. The biggest reason is they don't understand how a loan works. No one's explained a loan to them. And of course, you have the principal of the loan, you have the interest. Principal is the original amount of money you took out. The interest is the, the money that's charged for taking out that money. If you can pay down the principal amount, well, then you're paying less in interest. Right. So what I tell people, again, whole chapter about paying off debt is like any extra money you have, you need to call them and say, how can I contribute to just the principal? Right. And they make it difficult for you because you're in debt longer, it makes them more money. Yeah, they don't want you to pay it off. No, yeah. no, they don't make this easy at all. Like I had my car I through Toyota, like that was like my piece of debt I took on was to buy my car. And I remember getting, you know, 50 extra bucks and I sent it in and my payment was just $50 cheaper the next month. And I was like, what is this about? So of course I call them and they're like, oh, if you want it to go to the principal, which I even knew the language to ask, right? They're not gonna tell you voluntarily. They're like, oh, you need to send the money via check to a P.O. box in Iowa. Here's the address. And we're only giving it to you because you asked. Wow. They're they're sneaky. Yeah. They're trying to keep you in debt for longer. So any extra money you do have, don't just like send it in. Make sure it's actually going to the principal to lower the original amount so you're paying less in interest. Yeah. Relatable. I had the same kind of experience, not to that extreme, but I actually had to dig through the, the OEM's website. Oh, great. And you paid off... You know, mm -hmm. online. But there was a place. They're it making was, it slightly easier because I think people are calling them on some shit. But like. Yeah. It was several clicks down. So it mm -hmm. wasn't easy. But it's the same kind of idea. But, like, and again, you have to know. Like, this is this is the screwed up part of it is that yeah. you have to know the language. Right. You even have to know what you're looking for. That's right. Of like, okay, what is principal? What is interest? What is, you know, yeah. APR? What is all of, you know, what do all these things mean? Yeah. Everyone's out to make the buck off of you. Oh, yeah. Um. So then how how do we get our credit score up? So we're talking about mm -hmm. paying down credit, getting money saved. Um, bust the myth yeah. about uh, keeping a balance on the credit card. For example. Oh, my least favorite one. Yeah, there is this myth that like if you keep a balance on your credit card, it's going to increase your credit score. No, it's just going to put you in debt. Don't do that. Like, that's just, I like, again, not so conspiracy, conspiracy theory. I think it's perpetuated by credit card companies to just make a little bit of money off of you. No, so definitely not true. Also, there's another myth that checking your credit hurts your credit. And as long as you're not doing like a hard inquiry, which is like, I'm going to buy a car. I need to check my credit. Like if you just go on a credit karma or whatever, that's fine. And it's yeah. great actually, because you need to understand the lay of the land. So both of those myths, completely false. Credit score is made up of three main things. One is like, am I paying my bills on time and in full? 
That's like the biggest thing. Am I submitting it on the scheduled date? And is it the full payment? Can I back up for just two seconds? Yeah. So hold that thought. So if you're 18, for example, yes. or, or uh, can you get a credit card when you're you can, but you're 18? like an authorized user, typically like under a parent's card. Or All something right. So like let's that. say at 18. Yep. You say get a credit card. Yeah. Because you need to establish credit. Somewhere. I got my credit card when I was 18. Yeah. So th let's, that's a starting point. Like mm -hmm. if you don't have a credit card, if you're 18, coming out of high school, whatever, and listening to this. But you have to use it responsibly. So we're yeah. the on time and in full, right? Yeah. It's not free money. Yeah. Only put stuff on the card unless it's like absolute emergency, but that's why we have in the emergency fund. Only put things on the card that you can afford. Yeah. So, so buying a car mm -hmm. and getting a credit card, these things start to establish this credit for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, a credit score, we joke, is like your adulting GPA, right? It's like, are you a uh, trustful or, you know, trustworthy yeah. borrower? What kind of risk are you? Right, yeah. right. So if you're paying your bills on time and in full, it's showing, hey, I'm responsible. Hey, I know when my bills are due and I'm paying the full amount. The second thing is it's like your length of credit. Right. So for me, I'm, my credit line's now about a decade long. And that's probably the least out of your control. You either opened up a credit card or you started a credit line or you didn't. So if you don't have that, like great time to establish that now. The third one that very rarely gets talked about is what's called like credit utilization. And it's like, how much credit are you using? So if I have a credit card with a $10,000 credit line and I am spending $5,000 a month, my credit utilization rate is 50%. Mm -hmm. And we want to do everything we can to decrease our utilization rate because, again, it's showing, hey, I have this amount of credit, but I'm not going balls to the wall all the time and spending right. all of that money. It's kind of like a debt to equity ratio, right? Yeah, yeah, very similar. Yeah. yeah so it's like this idea. The Experts say it's like 30% if you can get it under 30, but really like under 10 is a great way to boost your score. So ask for a credit line and then don't use it. Because they, again, want you to spend more money. So they'll give you a credit line typically. Yeah. And so if you're at 10,000, ask them for 12, ask them for 15, and then keep spending five. Mm -hmm. And how often can you ask? Six months to a year, I think is a good yeah. like pace. Um, and again, like if you're at 10,000 and you ask for like a $50,000 limit, they'll probably not give right. it to you. But like these small increases are decreasing your utilization rate. Yeah, but that delta between right. you know, right. is where the money's at, right? Or the mm -hmm. credit score hack is at. Yeah, because again, you're showing... I'm responsible and I'm not maxing out my cards every month. Yeah. And I'm actually only using 7% of what you're giving me. It's a super smart hack. I didn't even think about that. That was so yeah. like, oh, of course. Yeah. And of course, again, I'm not the first person to say this. Credit utilization is one of the factors that they cite. There's also no, I mean, you'll appreciate this as a marketer. It's like SEO, right? When you're like, Google, if I do this and they're like, yeah, maybe, but we're not going to tell you like where you'll rank. It's very similar with like a credit score right. where they're like, do these things in theory. And you're like, and it'll increase it. How many points? And they're like, I don't know. We'll think about it. Yeah. And it might take six months. So it is like, it, it will take typically a little bit of time, um, but just be patient. Yeah. And, and it can go down too. Once, oh, yeah. Even if you're... If you pay off debt, that's actually something very often that happens is people will be like... Tori, I paid off debt. That's what you wanted me to do. And my credit score is lower. And it's like very normal. And it's very temporary because basically that, you know, you were showing them month over month. Okay, I'm sending money in and now that's gone. Yeah. And so you have a te temporary like ding in your credit. Yeah. Such a racket, actually. <laughs> oh, it's it's complete bullshit. We're like one of the few countries that has a credit score. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... We're heading into a recession if we're not already there now. Yeah. Um, tips for 
being financially savvy in a recession. Our I mean, word always comes up, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like, I mean, it seems no, it's like so common. there's opportunities too, right? Yeah. I mean, again, first thing, important to give yourself grace and understanding when things are great, really especially important when things are not so great. Um, yeah. Again, more shame is not going to help. I joke that shame is the only human emotion that's not productive. Every other human emotion has some sort of like meaning or helpfulness and shame's just not helpful. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk to business owners, people who are running their own business. So let's sure. put it in that context. So what what can we do now during the recession Yeah. Um, to either take advantage or hunker down or whatever your sure. advice is? Yeah. I think about this both as a business owner and as an individual of I have plans like A through D. And I went on team retreat where I go with my executive team. It used to be just me as I check myself into a hotel for a couple days. I'm the CEO. Right? Literally, so, it was like, I'm on executive retreat. And they're like, aren't you the only one? And I'm like, yeah, it's great. But like, that's the time to, you know, what went well this year? What didn't? What do we want to improve? Right off, by the oh, way. totally. Yeah. That was the best part of it. Yeah. So we sat down and we're like, okay, if shit really hits the fan, like what is what is the, the things we're going to do? What levers are we pulling? Mm-hmm. You can do this in your business. You can do this in your life of like plan A is things are great. Nothing's changed. Plan B is like, okay, things are a little tight. What are we, you know, we're not going out to eat. We're not maybe going to the hotel Cancel for executive Hulu. retreat. Right, right, right. Exactly. Pause Netflix. Exactly. Yeah. Plan C is like, okay, things are starting to get real. Are we potentially laying people off? Are we, you know, cutting things that aren't absolutely necessary? Yeah, no more new shoes. Right. And then plan D is like zombies outside, like nuclear options. Sell everything in the house. Basically, Li- right, 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 right. Yeah. And so you can do this with your business. And we have this. We've also set goals in the same way that it's like, everything's great. We're increasing our revenue this year. Okay, we're increasing, but very moderately. We're having the same year we had last year. Okay, we're having, this is the money we need to make to pay our bills. How are you personally feeling? Are you feeling bullish about like where you are? Or it's are a good you, question. Uh, I mean, I personally, I, I'm good. Yeah. Like I have my emergency fund in place. I have, you know, I have paid off any debt. Like I'm good. But like, are you charging hard then into the storm? Like this is a chance for me to. It's an interesting question because with this, again, very specific to me, just launched this book, hit New York Times, which is something I've always wanted to do. And now I'm kind of like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> like I'm really tired. We've been pushing really hard. I joke for six months in a year. And then my best friend was like, you've been pushing for about five years. And I was like, yeah, it's a great point. So one of the things that we keep talking about as a team is like, what ways can we, as opposed to constantly thinking about generating waves, how can we ride the wave that we've already generated over the past couple of years? Yeah. Well, at the same time, balancing, okay, we got to keep the lights on. We got to keep people paid. And so I think that creating systems is a perfect thing to do right now of what sort of building can I do right now? What does that, that look like? Setting up like a really good email funnel. Again, super specific example. Mm-hmm. But like somebody comes in or even before that, how are we getting people on the email list? How does that happen? And then when they're on the list, how are they divvied up into certain categories or certain, you know, customer personas? And then what happens on, again, autopilot when they get dropped lower and lower into the funnel? At what point does conversion happen? Yeah. Uh, tell me without telling me like revenue numbers what does the marketing mix look like we're for... very open with revenue numbers so i can uh, talk okay, to you about yeah, that share, share away 2021 we did over 3 million 2022 we did 4 4.3 mm-hmm. and i mean again plan a is we do eight this year but we'll see if that actually happens yeah so what's the marketing mix look like so you, you've got email funnels email yep. marketing i mean we have a lot of different channels um mm-hmm. 
we're starting YouTube this year. We do YouTube shorts, but we're going to take YouTube more seriously this year. TikTok, we have 2.3 million followers. That's our biggest platform. Um, Instagram's like 700,000. Um, we have SEO, obviously, in the website. Okay, so pause. So yeah. uh, TikTok, you know, owned by a foreign entity. <laughs> Instagram owned by the um, overlord that lives, you know, in know the Silicon Valley. I know where you're going. It's building on borrowed land. Yeah. Well, so I'm just curious. So like... Um, Talk to us about how you're monetizing that. Is it through brand deals and sponsorship yeah. or is it just um, thought leadership or how are you using those channels? Yeah, great question. Um, one of the reasons we're interested more in YouTube is because we're not part of the creator fund on TikTok. Like Instagram, we get a very small amount of money. So I think a lot of people, again, who aren't marketers or who don't own businesses are like, oh, you make a bunch of money on TikTok. And I'm like, no, like just posting on TikTok, unless it is a sponsored, you know, post, we don't make any money yeah. from TikTok, the platform itself. Are you seeing a lot of um, ability to take those people onto your newsletter or? Especially when like things were popping. To it's, your website? Yeah. Like virality is a lot harder on TikTok. I could, I could literally make you a viral video two years ago in three minutes that would get two million three million views yeah can't do that anymore like it's more saturated they're again pushing their sponsored content because that's how tiktok makes money but there was um a video that went viral in early 2021 that in a week sent a hundred thousand email subscribers to us wow and as a marketer that was like a big gold star i felt that was great that never felt better a hundred thousand new from a free video in a week whoa and that was conversion. We had plenty of people. We have a quiz that it's like, what is your money personality? We had plenty of people like dip out. That was 100,000 people who actually completed the whole. Yeah, they raised their hand and said, I want in. Yep. They did the whole like eight question quiz. It was nuts. I mean, job, yep. why don't, that's huge. But you can't do that anymore in the same way. You can get some of that, but. Well, yeah. I mean, so let's just. Uh, let's treat it as a. Um, a case study, but like, mm -hmm. yeah, sure, you had a windfall, but like, still, that's a pretty viable strategy, even if you're putting a hundred people, oh yeah, per video onto your email list, because that's why, like, our so our biggest part of our business is affiliate marketing, and that shocks a lot of people. The vast majority of our revenue comes from recommendations, and even like you very organically, and I appreciate it, had me plug an affiliate link twenty minutes ago, but like that is huge for us, yeah. And of course, we don't work with brands we don't believe in, but. If I'm already talking about a bank account that's important, it yeah. makes sense for me to go, hey, link and bio for the one I recommend. Absolutely. And so that's actually where the bulk of our revenue comes from. It comes from, you know, the free content or the value content that we're building. And then, okay, getting them offline to either go do something that makes us money or to sign up for the email list so that we eventually, potentially, they're they're a customer. Yeah, you can go back and market to them. And yep. you're still serving the people you're seeking to serve because oh of course yeah and, uh, that's like my biggest marketing ethos is you serve before you sell yeah. always is you provide value and you build trust and you give somebody a reason to stick around and then maybe they'll buy from you maybe they won't but they're gonna hopefully like you and stick around and get a lot of value from you and that's great mm. uh let's talk about youtube for a second yeah so you're not part of the youtube partner program yet no, we had, um, we've produced shorts, like YouTube shorts. And then okay. we do like some YouTube videos that are like 10 minute clips of our podcast, but like we haven't really sat down and started okay. doing that yet. And why have you decided to do that? I think monetization is the big thing. Yeah. I mean, creators are, you know, with similar sizes to us are making 30, 40, 50 K a video completely passively. Mm -hmm. 
And it's also people have begged us to be on YouTube forever and feels like the natural extension. The other interesting thing that I have some beef with, but I understand, again, as my marketer, my marketer brain, TikTok even has a platform that has constantly confirmed its importance for brands. Brands are still really nervous. They're really nervous about it. Yeah. They're more likely to, you know, give us money to do an Instagram partnership. And of course, we're talking to other creators who are making bank on YouTube from sponsorships. Yeah. So, you know, if I had 2.3 million YouTube subscribers, I think we'd be making very different money in terms of sponsorships than we do with our 2.3 on TikTok. I agree. Yeah. I agree. So it's smart. Yeah. And if you don't know, the reasons are obvious. I mean, I can weigh in on my opinion. It's basically a foreign entity that has been uh, blocked in several other countries. And I think it's also characterized as like the 17-year-old dance app. Yeah. I wonder. I mean, I, as a marketer yeah. who talks to brands a lot, I think it's more of the- The risk. It, it being uh, a, a foreign um, entity controlling that, yeah. that there's been so much talk politically about yeah, how sure. it's possible. You know, I think people, brands are very risk averse, right? Yeah, Especially totally. the bigger brands. So it just makes sense. Um, and they want their marketing budget to go as far as possible. And yeah, yeah. no, yeah. I get it. And it's also, um, I think just the format of TikTok is so different, right? And they're they're all trying to compete with each other. It's like now, you know, videos on TikTok, I mean, this could literally change next week, but like right now it's just static photo text. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what Instagram was two years ago? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just like exhausting. They're yeah. all trying to be each other and then they're all trying to like cannibalize, but weirdly... You know, one does one thing and then literally, yeah, the trend goes the other way. And I'm like, pick what you want to be. Just stay in your way. Yeah. So you're doing uh, mostly organic, but are you doing some paid as well? Never. No paid? Never. I'm really okay. proud of that. I think we spent 20 bucks one weekend on Facebook ads and I was like, never again. This was back in like 2020. Yeah. No. Nope. So are you completely against it? Like as a policy or you just. I'm, I would, I would be interested in exploring it. We've talked about it. I mean, again, like the marketer in me is like, that's what I'm most proud of. In addition to, of course, the impact and everything that we've yeah. made. But like uh, we have grown this business, no venture capital, no outside funding and no paid ads. And I ran marketing at my nine to five and, you know, corporate for companies that were spending six, seven figures a month on Facebook ads yeah, to, in order to grow their business. Yeah. Well, again, going back to your like ride the wave metaphor, Mm -hmm. I think that's healthy mentality. Took a lot more time and energy, but yeah, I think way more sustainable. Uh, Another good point, right? Like, so if you're just getting started and you think you can automatically hop on a, the perfect wave, probably not going to happen. No. Took a couple years before we made money. Yeah. And you didn't really start popping off on social until what, like 2019? 2019 and then TikTok in mid 2020. It was July 2020. I mean, that's just a couple of years ago, right? So, like, it goes back to you got to do the reps. You got to. But we're not patient as human beings, just in general, but also as like business owners. It's it's like we're not patient. But I think, you know, someone who's had a parent fast success it hasn't been fast yeah you six put fast years. in so many quotes yeah yeah but it's like even six years like still mm-hmm. i mean that's six years <laughs> oh but i'm just getting started i'm yeah. out here i'm like we're just getting started yeah i mean according to malcolm gladwell you still got four years to go before i'm an expert a master right <laughs> uh so you're doing okay yeah yeah no i'm very thankful and i'm also yeah i'm i'm proud that we have a completely remote team of 15 people and that's been the hardest thing to 
you know, be a CEO of like, what is what does that mean? Back when it was just me, I was calling shots and I was writing the captions myself and it was a lot easier in many ways. And then, you know, these are really good challenges of how do you continue to lead a team? What is my role as CEO? It is razzle dazzle and making sure we make money. And beyond that, it's like everything else needs to get handled by somebody else. And when it's your baby, that's really, it's an interesting transition. Maybe final thoughts. Let's go back to investing. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about treasury. Yeah. Um, treasury is an investing platform that I co-created. And um, again, we were seeing this huge gap and continue to see a huge gap in not only the amount of women investing, but the investing education. The amount of people who told me, and even I had this experience when I was in my early 20s, my dad had to walk me through, oh yeah, on TD Ameritrade, here's the chart that you need to pay attention to, and here are the six charts you don't need to pay attention to. And all of the, it's, the barrier to entry is so high. Yeah. So that's a DO, that's DIY though. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But even like robo-advisors, we talk about like, we, we joke that Treasury is the Hannah Montana of investing platforms because it's the best of both worlds. I don't know if you have kids or if you ever see Hannah Montana. Millennial reference. The best of both worlds. Yeah. Um, because it it is all of the the perks of DIY with none of the like analysis paralysis panic. And it's the great parts about the robo-advisor with none of the fees, additional fees, or like the fishing for you rather than teaching you to fish. Yeah. So, so it starts this is your with proprietary partnership or yeah, venture, so it's, yeah. It starts with like an investing one-on-one workshop that I do live. And 80% of the people who join Treasury have never invested before. And actually at minute like 40 or 45, they actually have the opportunity to invest live. And so like we did a workshop last week, 100K invested. We have 30, oh gosh, we probably up to 32 or 33 million invested in the platform. Question for you. So if yeah. uh, if I'm like on Vanguard or mm -hmm. TD Ameritrade, can I take that and roll it into Treasury? So the idea with Treasury is as it exists right now, we're expanding to other platforms in the future, but it's built on top of TD Ameritrade. So it's like, we are the lens through which you're learning how to invest using the technology that's already available. Okay. So you get a TD Ameritrade account, but we're guiding you step-by-step step through, okay, here's the account to open if you want this. Here's exactly what buttons and what check marks you need to do in order to have the account. And then you link it through Treasury and you can actually purchase your investments on TD Ameritrade, but with Treasury's interface. Yeah. So you aren't having, again, that analysis paralysis. Yeah, you're hand-holding, mm -hmm. you're... Guiding, guiding, and also... Teaching. Uh, and it's also a community, too. So you're coming in and there's, you know, daily challenges and there's further videos. It's like going to the gym, right? You went to the gym once and that's amazing, but you're not looking like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Like, you have to keep going to the gym. And you also have a place where you can be like... Um, the market was down today and I'm really scared and I don't know what to do. And we can be like, hey, long-term game. I know it's really scary, but like we're in this for the long haul. Or like, you know, the person's like, Shh, I have $2,000. Should I invest now or should I wait until I'm like, nope, time in the market is better than timing the market. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, stocks or bonds right now? Depends on how old you are. Depends on your risk level. I am in VTI for the rest of my life. <laughs> I joke that like an index fund, right? Diversification, low fee, low risk. Not sexy, but that's where I'm hanging out. Because mm -hmm. you can keep your money there for a long time. Yeah, and groups of stocks, right? It's not just like I'm picking one company. It's like picking a racehorse, right? I'm not just picking that one company. I'm picking VTI is every single company in the U.S. stock market. What's the difference between that and an ETF? It's basically the difference in when they're traded. Mutual funds are traded differently than ETFs. Okay. A, a lot of people I know, and I'm not one of them, who has a ton of money stockpiled, uh, it has shifted it recently from stocks to bonds, for example. Yeah. Can um, I ask how old you are? 
I'm a middle-aged man. Okay. <laughs> but that's the natural thing, right? Yeah. It's like you talk to any financial expert. I'm 28. I'm okay being 100% in bonds or excuse me, 100% in stocks. And as you age, right, you're moving more of your portfolio out of stocks and into bonds. Yeah. Well, I, I talked to one of these um, investor gurus. Mm-hmm. Um and he, How much did they want to charge you? Well, no, 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 no. I, I'm talking like he's an entrepreneur. He's 32. Okay. okay. And he has like, I don't know, $40 million in the bank. Cool. And he's like, I'm taking all my money. I'm going liquid and I'm putting it in bonds. Huh. And I'm like, that's, that was my reaction. Huh. huh. What do you know that I don't know? And so I was just curious like what your hot take on that is. But My hot take is that there are no hot takes with investing. Mm-hmm. Again, I talked about like investing shouldn't be sexy. It should be stable and consistent over a long period of time. Yeah. And everybody out here, um, you know, day trading, crypto, like, nah, it, it's consistent. And if you're thinking day to day or even like year to year, that needs to be in a savings account. That That's not where your investments go. Right. Your investments are retirement. And I would argue any goal that is like seven to 10 years out. Like if you want to buy a house in a couple of years, I wouldn't put that in the market, but you have to understand like your risk awareness. Like what are you willing to gain or lose? And I think the other thing too is um, even we're talking about like gain and losing, um, you haven't lost or gained money unless you sell. So all these people panicking, right? And reading the CNBC market headlines, which is like NASDAQ down 20%. And it's like, uh, great. Okay. Like that sucks, but like I'm in this for a really long time, and it's just like buying a house where like the actual value hasn't hasn't come unless you choose to sell. Right? Are you looking to jump on opportunities? Like you know, Amazon is down, for example, or nope. Disney is down. Or- I own two individual stocks, and I did it out of like moral support. I own Bumble and I own Shopify. Okay. Bumble because I believe in the mission, and Shopify has asked me to speak, and I think they're a great company. They're the only two individual stocks I own. Okay. I own very small shares of them. Okay. Otherwise, it's just that. Group. 65% of my portfolio is VTI. Another, I think like 10 or 15%. This is, I'm literally like looking at treasury in my, in my head. Yeah. So we break it down. That's the other cool part about, you can see everybody's investments. You can't see the amount of money, but you can see like, what is their breakdown? 99.9% of my money is in index funds. Maybe let's um, like final parting words for founders, entrepreneurs, and small mm. business peeps. One thing that I've learned, especially as a younger entrepreneur, is that there were plenty of times where I was looking at somebody with a certain business and going, I can do that. I'm capable of that. Why is it not happening? Like I joke now, do you know Jenna Kutcher? Uh, no. Oh, she'd be a great person to have on. So she, um, she and I are now like colleagues and friends. Okay. But back when I started in 2015, 2016, she was like the beacon where I was like, oh, I want that. Like, you know, great podcast and big social following and and a stellar marketer. And I was like, I'm capable of that. Why can't I have that? But if a genie gave me Jenna Kutcher's business as it was and as I was in 2015, 2016, I would not have been able to handle it. And my ambition has gotten me where I am. My ambition is also a drug where I frequently overdose. (laughs) And it's frequently the reason that I can cite that I am not satisfied ever. And that we were talking before about, you know, what is the Tory done that brand? And it's the human being versus human doing of like, I never feel like I'm doing enough. And I think you have to be patient with your ambition. You have to curb that ambition to understand if you know you're capable of that, you will get it. 
If you know you're capable of that, you will get it. It just might take a while, but it's supposed to take a while. Because again, the business I'm running now, I could not have handled in 2015. I didn't have the skill set. I didn't have the, the confidence. I didn't have the money or the resources. I learned all of that by doing it. So if you are the person who is just so ambitious and is dreaming so big, don't stop. You also need to understand that things are going to take as much time as they're going to take. And you actually need all of that time and that skill set and that expertise to be able to handle all of the dreams that are going to come true. Thank you.